Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a podcast host, professor, and this week, an amazing story. The story of kleptoplasty and a solar-powered animal. <laughs> this is an old one that I just think is amazing and it's something I've been interested in reading about for a long time. I'm speaking with Dr. Sonia Cruz. She's a principal researcher at University Avrio, which is in Avrio, Portugal. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cruz. Thank you, Kevin, for this uh, invitation. I'm delighted to talk with you. And I'm very happy to talk with you, too. It's it's a really fascinating topic that I've wanted to have on the podcast for probably five years. So I hinted around about solar-powered animals but when was this discovered? Well, uh, the first reports about sea slugs that were uh, hosting chloroplasts and functional chloroplasts dated back to 69, if I'm not mistaken. So somewhere late 60s, they started to notice that some sea slugs uh, were harboring intact chloroplasts. And that's where the story starts. <laughs> so this is a sea slug. So it would tell me a little bit more about the animal. Well, they are beautiful to start with. Uh, some can be very small, a few millimeters. Other can go up to 20, 20, 30 millimeters. So there's a, um, you can actually see them with naked eye. Although for some species, you might need a, a binocular at least to see how beautiful and the colors and all that they have. They have these, they feed on the macroalgae and they suck all the content of the macroalgae digested it except for the chloroplasts and often they they are they have large parts of their body green because the digestive diverticula is ramified and is harboring these uh, chloroplasts intracellularly so they uptake the the chloroplasts to their own cells and that's why we see a large portion of these sea slugs green in some cases they are completely fully green this is just amazing to me. So, the, and I, you know, pardon my silly questions because this seems so interesting. So when they eat, they, they, they break open the cells and they digest the, the contents of the cell, but the chloroplasts are taken up into the cells that line the digestive tract or are they somehow transported in the body of the slug? Or what happens there? Yes, it's the cells of the digestive tract. So they, they're uptaken uh, through phagocytose, supposedly, um, and just stay, stay there, intracellular, in the digestive diverticular. Okay, so, but, but they are actively photosynthesizing, right? I mean, they, they, they are taking light and fixing carbon? Exactly. And depending on the species, that can occur for maybe, in some species, maybe just a few days that happens. But in other cases, 
they've been able to produce oxygen for up to 10 months, 8, 10 months. And one of the species that does that goes close, somewhere closer to you, I think, like in Florida, in, in um, Elysia chlorotica. So that's one of the species that does this for the longest um, periods. And it's often collected uh, in the United States or Mexico. I'm saying closer to you because I'm in Portugal, in Europe, so the other side of the of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. I, I can wave at you when I stand on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but so the, the um, this is what's so interesting to me, though. So this isn't just one species of sea slug. It's many different kinds of sea slugs that share the same strange adaptation. Yes. Uh, I've been working with... Uh, well, one, Elisia crispata, Elisia chlorotica, Elisia timida, and Elisia viridis. And those, those four, these are normally my model studies, they have uh, different retention times. We call these retention times to the, um, to the time that they are capable to do photosynthesis with this kleptoplast. So normally the, um, the protocol to, um, uh, to define these times is by just taking them away from the food source and leave them starving and see for how long these chloroplasts will perform photosynthesis. So obviously they will digest a portion of them. And so some will be digested, like probably the oldest ones, but then the newly acquired, the most fresh chloroplasts in the cells would, will remain for a certain period of time. And that's period of time. It's what we call the retention time. So that's um, these four species have different retention times of uh, of functional chloroplasts it means that they will do photosynthesis for different periods of times from a few weeks up to several months this is really just it, it is amazing to me but because it seems like the mechanics of photosynthesis a leaf is very well suited to host the chloroplasts in specific cell layers that are uh, exposed to carbon dioxide that it, it just seems like yeah. that's a, the environment for it so how does carbon dioxide get into a sea slug or does it just use the carbon dioxide that is produced through normal metabolism they use the carbon dioxide from uh, from the environment so from the water uh, so inorganic carbon that it's a uh, um, uptake from the sea slug so we have some studies for instance where we labeled the carbon in the water and then see the uptake of the sea slug. And so, and we found that um, both nitrogen and carbon can be uptaken from the water, so from the ammonium and nitrates in the water, bicarbonate, sorry, uh, in the water into the animal cells, not only the chloroplast. So they, they get into the animal through the chloroplast, uh, but then they are also spread. Uh, this carbon and nitrogen was found uh, in other tissues of the animal. So it clearly shows that the animal uptakes these um, carbon sources from the water via chloroplasts into the animal cells, into other animal tissues. It's really interesting. How, how do, um, is it inherited? I mean, do, do, they, do they pass on the chloroplasts or are they every generation no. has to get new ones? Exactly. Each generation have to get its new ones. Uh, uh, actually, um, there was this very controversial topic of uh, horizontal gene transfer, if it's happening or not. And one of the things that they, uh, one of the studies that uh, suggests that it's uh, it's not happening is exactly because it's not when when you look at the germline, there's uh, like the descendants. They have uh, no remains of this chloroplast, neither of the genes. Uh, of um, of the algae, 
nucleus or so on. So it's really a new acquisition um, at each generation. And uh, how they acquire them, how do they get uptake? And, uh, well, they are recognized for not being digested somehow. So, and this is completely something that it's still not known. After 40, 50 years of studying them, there's no uh, consensus of what's the mechanisms that enables them to recognize these organelles uh, and keeping them, not digesting it uh, with, with all the, the other contents. Yeah, that was my next question. So everything Sorry. else, no, no, that, no, that's great. You, you read my mind. It, it, it's, it's, but mitochondria and, and other organelles are completely digested, but for some reason it leaves the chloroplast. Exactly, but uh, don't, don't ask me why or how. Uh, that's that's something we're still um, investigating. We are, for instance, looking at the lipidome of uh, of the cells and to see if there's any changes in the structure that would allow us to to understand, you know, if there's any recognition signaling there. But we still haven't um, got to any conclusions that I could share. <laughs> but could you tell me a little bit more about the horizontal gene transfer question or controversy? Because years ago, I remember that being a fascinating part that they did microarrays. This is probably back in the early 2000s, I think that exactly, there, yeah. yeah, that they said, Oh, look, looks like there's evidence of gene expression coming from the sea slug for genes that were supporting the chloroplast or proteins that were supporting the chloroplast, did that turn out to be maybe a little bit more questionable or still controversial? Well, the yes, there was this. Uh, there was some evidence even in the late nineties, and then uh, there was this big boom about this topic uh, in uh, two thousand and eight, if I'm not mistaken, with um, with a publication from uh, Mary Rumfo and uh, and her team on PNAS. So it was a big boom and saying, look, uh, we found all these genes. And But later on, people started looking at the transcriptomes and even themselves, the same team, looked at the at, uh, descendants and they don't find it. They didn't see any... Uh, they didn't find these the genes that originally were found uh, in those publications. So they have some explanations um, of what could have happened and why those genes were identified earlier with gene expression. But with the more advanced uh, um, protocols and transcriptomics and so on, they didn't really seem to to corroborate the story. Although some other teams, um, uh, uh, Pierce and his team, for instance, they, they, they still continue to show evidence. Uh, so the topic goes on, and I don't want to take any sides because that's not my field of expertise. <laughs> so I won't take sides. But um, in my opinion, it seems more convincing that it is not happening. That's, uh, that's my sole opinion uh, with having not much experience hands-on on the topic. Well, it's, a, it's an extraordinary claim, and so you have to have lots of very clear evidence to get too excited about it. But this is the yes. point that maybe for the listener who doesn't think about plants is that there, there has to be very careful coordination between the chloroplast and the nucleus that some of the genes for the chloroplast and for photosynthesis that encode the proteins for photosynthesis come from the nucleus and exactly. uh, are encoded in the nucleus. So how does the chloroplast function without things like, you know, rubisco <laughs> or does it somehow well, do it? 
Well, that's the one million dollar question. Uh, if how how do they do it? That's what we're still trying. I started working with these organisms in uh, 2011, and uh, I was um, trying to. So my first tasks, I came from a photo protection uh, background in plants. Uh, sorry, in algae, <laughs> uh, in diatoms actually. And I thought, well, my backgrounds could help understanding these mechanisms because I wanted to investigate how do they cope because is as you said uh, they need they need um, they need a, a lot of products that come from the the nucleus genome and that they are codified there so they need those those resources those enzymes those proteins to be uh, to be constantly repaired because if you give them excessive light for instance to the sea slugs the chloroplasts will uh, will fail and so I, I thought that my um, my insight uh, my knowledge uh, about these photoprotection mechanisms could um, could bring uh, huge inputs into the topic and it didn't actually we at that time we discovered that actually the most of these sea slugs not all but some of these sea slugs feed on algae that don't even have these mechanisms for instance this photoprotection so Photoprotection doesn't even seem to be relevant, but somehow these mechanisms of repair of the chloroplasts uh, has, has to be relevant, or maybe not. Maybe they just protect themselves because they can. Well, they can get away from. Uh, contrary to the leaves, they 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 can crawl, right? They can escape from the light, and maybe that's all they do. Well, no, that's that's perfect. They, really, the, the because the the thing that I get interested in when you think about this is that. Photosynthesis is a costly process in a way in that certain parts oh. of the machinery are damaged and need to be replaced, but the replacement exactly. comes from the nucleus. But also exactly that but, mm -hmm. but also the um, you know, central drivers like the small subunit of Rubisco is encoded in the nucleus, except maybe it isn't in the algae or you know, is is there any evidence that everything in these algae species is on board? In the, I guess they're algae, so they don't really have a nuclear. Plant. Well, yeah, I guess. No, 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 no. They, you, you're absolutely right. Your, your, a lot of things that they need are in the nucleus. That was also one of the, um, uh, one of the hypotheses, uh, saying that perhaps these chloroplasts are of these algae are more robust. And they, some of them seem to be. So they seem to have some subunits that are encoded in the chloroplast and not in the nuclear. It's true. But that alone would not be sufficient to, to answer the question of how do they repair themselves and so on. So I think that they just avoid uh, being damaged for long periods. But I, I really have no, we really still don't know how do they cope with not having uh, those um, those genes. Uh, other hypothesis is dual targeting. So perhaps, but that's just hypothesis. There's no really work on that. Perhaps uh, there's um, the animal itself can produce some proteins that can, although were originally designed, let's say, um, for targeting the animal cells, the, the terminals, whatever, they could still be recognized by the chloroplast and used up by the chloroplast. Uh, but that's still just an hypothesis I, I don't think that any group to my best knowledge uh there's no one is testing that hmm that's what about things like other byproducts of photosynthesis like uh reactive oxygen species things like that i mean those are also detrimental to a cell and and how does the sea slug deal with that problem 
Well, that's one of uh, the... Uh, I haven't really uh, accepted a funded project, uh, a huge one, like uh, in Europe is uh, one of the main uh, largest funding is as European Research Council starting grant. And that's one of the tasks to try to understand that. And it's because the um, there was one work that uh, fascinated me by uh, some German colleagues that uh, they showed two um, two species quite close to, uh, of the sea slug that they feed on the same algae but one in one species uh, it was that one species are capable of retaining the chloroplast for longer and in that species where the chloroplasts are retained for longer and like doing photosynthesis for longer, um, they had less uh, reactive oxygen species when they uh, when they um, uh, label that and look at in, under a confocal microscopy. They then see those differences. And uh, they proposed, their hypothesis was that uh, actually was not about the algae, but was about the capacity. So this long-term retention was about the capacity of the animal to... Um, and to get rid of uh, the reactive oxygen species because it was the same type of the same source of chloroplasts, only different animals. So they they hypothesize that the the answer to why certain species can keep this chloroplast functioning for longer time it's linked to the capacity of the animal itself to get rid of these reactive oxygen species. Um, I have many questions, many doubts about this still, and I hope that in the five, the next five years, I'll be able to give, provide some answers. But again, and I'm sorry, it's it feels so bad to be keeping repeating this, but again, uh, we don't know. We still don't know <laughs> how how do they get rid of it. It's still um, puzzling. Well, it, it, it's okay to say you don't know because I just think it's fantastic. I I would love to come do a sabbatical in your lab because I please come. <laughs> this this would please be come. No, this would be such a great question. I, I, the other question about that I have is, you know, you it must have some sort of ecological advantage for the sea slug. So if you have sea slugs that have the chloroplast retention versus those that don't, does it really affect their growth? Well, we don't have uh, the slugs that retain the chloroplast. We cannot have them without. So it's a difficult, uh, oh, okay. it's a difficult experimental design. You can't have the same species with and without. Um, you just can't. Like you can't if you try to bleach them. Let's say they die. And in nature, uh, often they only in some species, for instance, they can have the direct development, uh, meaning they go from larvae directly to the slug. Others they have to do this metamorphose first. But in both cases, they need to have they need to feed on the um, on the macroalgae a first time in order to develop into the adult. So it's kind of an obligation, and they keep them. Uh, what some colleagues um, have done was to show that if they feed only for uh, a short period of time, let's say less than seven days in this case of this experiment they've done, they couldn't um, they couldn't survive for longer. So they actually needed in that particular case to feed for at least seven days to then be, be able to retain this chloroplast for a long time. So there's something that happens in that early stage, and that's one of the things I, I aim to study the next years, something that happens that happens in, in those early stages, in this uh, transition from larvae to um, juvenile that uh, enables them, that change the, the cells. There's something inside that changes, that makes them recognize this chloroplast as something necessary 
and then keep them. Uh, we don't have um, we don't have these sea slugs without the chloroplast. So it's not a, a choice for them. I think for some reason they uh, evolve um, in this way. So it has to be a huge advantage for them. Some people say that perhaps was just about camouflage. Um, but uh, I mean, I don't know. I think it's it's a huge investment to be just about camouflage, I think. But um, I don't know. <laughs> now that was uh, kind of my next question too, was the, because uh, there's so many different photosynthesis inhibitors that you could apply. So if you apply any of these drugs that are, well, compounds that are really targeting photosynthesis, maybe as herbicides, they yeah. it, it eliminates the ability of the sea slug to even live then. Yes, we some studies use monolinurol, so it um, uh, would be something similar to the DCMU that we use in plants. Uh, so this is an herbicide, and it's used in aquariums. Uh, so supposedly it wouldn't be so harmful to the sea slug. Uh, and I've actually an ongoing uh, work experiment to, to confirming that, that it's not uh, affecting the animal. So it's important to remember that we, it, this is an animal too. There's an animal there as well. So we have to be careful when uh, putting an herbicide because the, um, the mollusk could not like it. But uh, it seems that it's an approach that could be used uh, and it has been used. Um, and the same way that we use dark. So some people use these inhibitors, some people just put them in the dark. Uh, both have advantages and disadvantages. If we just put them in the dark to inhibit photosynthesis, well, the animal also doesn't like to be in the dark. You know, uh, it, has, um, it requires light for other functions. So the two approaches have been using, the eliminative photosynthesis, and we try to um, sometimes to separate autotrophy from heterotrophy using that approach with an herbicide. Um, but it hasn't been very... So normally when you do that, except for one work, uh, that I'm sorry, but I really don't like that work. <laughs> but except for because they used six slugs, they had two individuals in each treatment, oh. and I have I have experiments where I have a minimum of twelve, and I could pick three or five from that treatment and tell the story I wanted because the variability is so big that we can't just look at two individuals in each treatment; it's just too low. Uh, but you know, <laughs> uh, leaving aside uh, those. Um, um, those details, let's say. Uh, most of the studies, what they do using monolinurone or using dark, what they do is, what they um, conclude is that when they don't have this, this autotrophy part, they live for less time. So they, they need, even if they, if they have put in starvation without the food source, but just with light or uh, in, in, uh, with an herbicide or darkness, uh, in most published works, what they see is that the animal does not live as long um, when it's in the dark or with an herbicide. So uh, inhibiting photosynthesis, it's something bad for, for the sea slug. It seems that some people say that it's the, the chloroplast could be like um, um, the storage room. So it could just be there as like starch accumulation and then use it later. But... Uh, and in some cases, in some species, they were seen that after 10 days, they start digesting of starvation, they start digesting the chloroplasts. But we saw that after within 12 hours, the animal tissues were labeled with products from photosynthesis. So 
uh, I think that both things can happen. I think that indeed they can uh, accumulate starch and if needed, they can digest them and use that source of energy. But also, I think that also the chloroplasts are constantly providing um, products of photosynthesis that, that are useful for the animals. So I think that we have these two ways. And your suggestion using um, photosynthesis inhibitors is showing that. It's showing that uh, when we inhibit photosynthesis, the animal is not happy. So it is an obligatory relationship somehow there. And, and a really interesting relationship, too. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Sonia Cruz about kleptoplasty and sea slugs that take the chloroplast from the algae they consume and use it for their own energy production. <laughs> How cool. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Now, chances are that if you're listening to this podcast, you've already had a little chunk of biotechnology injected into your arm in the interest of fighting SARS-CoV-2. But how do we inspire the hesitant to take this important public health step? It's about protecting the vulnerable, returning to normal, saving the small businesses. These are all the causes you have to talk about to get people excited about vaccination. So share those examples. But remind them also that every death and every long-term health problem is not magic. It came from a virus that was passed to somebody that was adversely affected. And that virus had to have passed through thousands of people since patient one in Seattle, January 2020. Which means along the way, one protected person could have broken that chain. The virus is just a virus. It's our decisions and our behaviors that allowed it to propagate and ultimately harm others. The vaccination is our best defense to break the propagation cycle. It's been shown to be safe, shown to be effective. Break the virus, break the chain, protect others. And let's get back to something better than normal. A place where we all demonstrate our commitment to protect each other from a completely preventable threat. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Sonia Cruz. And she's talking about kleptoplasty, the sea slugs that consume algae and then incorporate the chloroplasts as functional units of their own metabolism. And it's a fascinating topic that I've been just thrilled about for ages. Here's the big question, though, is that the chloroplast isn't just uh, photosynthesis, right? I mean, it's the main thing happening there. But there are all kinds of secondary metabolites that happen from uh, biochemistry that's confined in that space. So is there any evidence that uh, these other products play an important role in, in the sea slugs' growth and development? It has not been explored, but I think that, for instance, uh, and now I'm disclosing too much, but uh, I think that, for instance, one, one line of research that I want to pursue is the nitrogen fix fixation. Um, because when we, did, when we labeled the carbon, we also labeled uh, nitrogen. And although they could still acquire nitrogen in the dark, when, uh, when they are exposed to light, this um, uh, nitrogen was fixed via by, um, by well, the chloroplast was also uh, being implied in the nitrogen uh, acquisition into the animal. And, uh, and I think this could be um, 
maybe even more relevant than the carbon. So I, I think that's one line of research that needs to, to be explored further. But so far, there's like one work showing that uh, they, that the chloroplast would be involved in the, car, the nitrogen acquisition as well. The other thing that comes to me as a plant biologist when, when I think about this this question is, is there something that's protecting the chloroplast and its and its apparatus or you know be somehow protecting the proteins that are turned over in photosynthesis during photo inhibition or highlight? Is there something that we could take from the sea slug and maybe put back into plants and maybe make plants that are a little more resilient with respect to photosynthesis uh, photosynthesis? Yes, one one of the one of the importances of uh, studying the sea slugs is not just because it's fantastic and amazing. Like, how can they do that? Well, that's very intriguing. But exactly as you're saying, uh, I think we can learn a lot about how is the slug doing this because we can't do it in the lab for very long if we isolate chloroplasts. So, what are they doing to protect these chloroplasts? And this could exactly as you're saying open up. Um, a lot of potential other applications, um, both in uh, plant biotechnology, but even even in even in medicine, or you know, some 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 colleagues are interested, for instance, in um, encapsulating these chloroplasts uh, for oxygen production in like uh, organs transplants and and transportation uh, for many applications that need the oxygen, and often they've been turning into the microalgae, but the microalgae then reproduce, and if they're encapsulated, well, they have it's very limiting the time that they can be encapsulated, while these chloroplasts, they will not, uh, they will not, um, sorry, the reproduce is not the right word, they will not uh, duplicate, you know, they're not uh, um, um, uh, create more chloroplasts if they're encapsulated, but they can be continuing to do photosynthesis, be protected uh, and somehow and continue to do photosynthesis for a long period of time. So the sea slugs do that. So if we understand how the sea slugs can do it, uh, there's a lot of plant biotechnology and medical applications that can then be developed. That's a really fascinating idea. I didn't even think about that. But <laughs> is there any evidence that in the sea slug that they're dividing or are they just taking up more when they need more? No, dividing. Oh, yeah, that was the word I was searching. No, the chloroplasts are not dividing when they are in the sea slugs. Yeah. So they are they are not. They are not capable of uh, of dividing uh, after being ingested. So they lose that capa um, capability. But but for certain applications, that actually the key um, uh, a key role for for other applications in medical um, tools. That's really cool. So, so what do what do you think is really the next big question that different research groups are trying to answer around this really unusual organism? Well, I'm, I'm afraid to say that we're still trying to answer the same questions uh, for the last <laughs> ten years, at least since I start. <laughs> it's true since I start working with them. We keep adding more information, more information. We add and add information, uh, and bit by bit, we are opening more questions than answering. Uh, questions, as we know, as we do always, uh, but uh, we're still trying to answer the same questions. How, why are they not digesting them? So how are they recognized? How do cells recognize, okay, digest everything, but not this one? Um, and then, so that's one of the big questions. The other one would be, okay, but they produce damaging, like reactive oxygen species, as you mentioned. Uh, how do they get rid of it? I mean, how do they cope with that? 
And the third question would be, okay, they do photosynthesis, but then what? I mean, what's the benefit of the animal? And we are still really trying to answer to these questions. We have some tips here and there, but no conclusive answer to any of them. <laughs> and that's what's so cool is I think the biggest complaint that students have, my students have is, you guys figured everything out already. And, you know, <laughs> where do I where do I have, you know, my niche in science? And this seems to be a place that there, yes. you could probably put 50 more researchers into this yes. space <laughs> and still not figure it out. <laughs> Italy, please send them to my lab. I'll be, I'll be happy. To, to receive them or collaborate with you because you have a lot of knowledge uh, that will be um, very good to add to our team of expertise. So uh, we'll be very interested in, uh, in collaborating if uh, you have students that want a topic with a lot of, lot of, lot of answers to, to be, well, questions to be answered. So Dr. Sonia Cruz, thank you so much for your time today on really a fascinating topic. And I hope that as you make discoveries and sort out some of these questions, that you'll call me back and we can have you on the show again. Thank you, Shirley. <laughs> and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, we appreciate your listening. We appreciate. I appreciate. Um, this is all me. Um, I appreciate that you listen every week. It's amazing that we're going on 300 weekly episodes and seven years, um, going into the seventh year. So it's, uh, it's a, a, a real passion of mine, and I really appreciate it more and more every time we turn the calendar to the next year of weekly podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.